Welcome to Oh Malort, Chicago History You Never Learned in School. I am joined by Chicagoan Nikki, is it Patton? Patton? Patan, actually. Patan, okay. Yeah, Creole name. <laughs> all right, I meant to ask about the pronunciation before yeah. we hit record, but it's all good. And how are you today? Man, I'm I'm really good, actually. Um I, I work for a nonprofit in Inglewood, and so we're we're doing a, a big like event planning thing, and we like hung out with like some kiddos today to talk about entrepreneurship. So I'm in I'm in a really good mood. I'm doing good. That's good. Yeah. Very good. Now tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, I am one of those very annoying um, multi hyphenate, multidiscipline artists. Um, so I am a uh, let's see if I can remember the whole list. A writer, producer, singer, songwriter, graphic designer, photographer, visual artist, merchandiser, audio engineer. Whoa, that's a lot. A lot of stuff. I get bored very easily. Um, I never have enough money to produce things. So it's just do it myself. So. Well, yeah. Brandy mentioned you have a book coming out. I do. I do have a book coming out. Um, it actually just arrived yesterday. The physical copy just got here yesterday. It's called um working on me um it took me a very long time to write because i take myself way too seriously as an artist um but it's also a memoir so that also means there was a lot of deep emotional work that needed to be done in order to do it the right way um but it's finally done and it will be uh out into the world on april all right and where can people anywhere books are sold or Anywhere books are sold, um, my publisher is Vine Leaves Press. So if you go to vineleavespress.com and just search up my name, it'll pop it up and then it'll pop up links to everywhere um, that they're taking. And they're taking pre-orders right now. So, Excellent. Yeah. One little thing, and I think this is, we're in for a really good episode today. And one of the things that I do is I look at history and I look at how is this, uh, how does this match what's happening in present day? Sure. And so one of the things that I don't know, I just made this note because I've become obsessed with this thing today. <laughs> I don't know if you know, Tucker Carlson is in Russia. Yep. He went to the grocery store. <laughs> okay. I'm pretty sure he's never been to a grocery store in his entire life. I was going to be like, that seems like on brand for him. I feel like he has other people do that usually. They have just... those cart things like they have at Aldi. Yeah. And he's like amazed by it. <laughs> Right. Tucker Carlson to like, I don't know, take a walk around the block. He said going to the grocery store radicalized him against our leaders. What? I have so many questions. <laughs> I have so many questions. What kind of radicalization, Tucker Carlson? In what way have you been radicalized? Which leaders are you referring to? Like the folks that like run Aldi or like elected officials? Like who, who are you talking about? Everybody. They let our country get dirty. And by dirty, I think he means immigrants and stuff. Um, but that then there's this is in parallel to I learned about this dumb, dumb family that moved from Canada to Russia. Okay. Because Canada was too woke and they specifically brought up LGBTQ. Them and their eight kids. And then they're then they're talking about things like how hard it is to get citizenship, how they don't speak the language. And then they transferred money from their Canadian bank account to the Russian bank account. And 
they can't, their accounts got frozen because they think it's money laundering. So when the discernment comes around, when the lesson just is so perfect, it's just so like, nobody even needs to like say anything. It's just makes my heart very happy. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, listen, and this is, people can talk about how like America and Chicago in general are not without their problems. Yeah. But have you ever looked at how things are going elsewhere? You know? No, for real. Um, also, like, of all the countries that you would choose to be like, I, I need to, like, go and change my life and the lives of my children. And wh- I just don't understand why you would choose Russia. Like, I don't understand why you would sit around as, like, the parent to eight children and be like, yes, yes, let's relocate to a country actively involved in a war. Let's do that. Let's also relocate to a country that, like, doesn't seem to play very well or get along very well with any other countries and therefore, like, does not have things, like, smoothed out in terms of immigration or like money exchange or anything like why why no like why because <laughs> they're pretty harsh on the lgbtq and land's really cheap and they want to be farmers i feel like you could just go to georgia for that or you could go to like arkansas or you can like there's so many other places you could actually go to and achieve the same thing. right right I, so just keep that in mind because it might come up just in things that we're talking about good to know thank you have you ever heard of Oscar Staten de Priest? No. He was Chicago's first black alderman. Whoa. Okay. Let's go, Oscar. Yeah. So a little bit about him. He was born on March 9th, 1871 okay. to former enslaved people in Florence, Alabama. His father worked part-time as a farmer while running a hauling business. And his mom worked as a laundress. Mm, okay. In 1878, his family moved to Kansas. Okay. He studied bookkeeping and business at Selena Normal School. That's mm. the name of the school. Mm. When he was 17, he ran off to Ohio with two other fellas. Mm. He settled in Chicago in 1889, which was well before the Great Migration. Yeah. But what's interesting, though, is that around that time that they moved to Kansas, there was actually a whole movement of Black people that moved to Kansas. They were called exodusters. Interesting. And they they moved to Kansas to get away from the redemptionist South because, you know, after the Civil War ended, Um, And everybody was supposed to be like getting along. You know, there was just like a campaign of just like terror that was just rained down upon like black communities. And so a lot of black folks made the decision to move west. And Kansas was one of the places that they decided to move. And it was a whole movement called the Exoduster Movement. And they basically like a huge care. I think it's like 40,000 black people moved to like that Dust Bowl sort of area. I did not know that. Yeah. That's I mean, I I think most people know about the Great Migration. Sure. Sure, but there were, yeah, lots of little movements before then. All right. That's very cool. So I'm going to quote from an article I found in the Chicago Tribune. Friends tell the story that shortly after his arrival in Chicago, a friend invited Mr. DePriest to attend a precinct meeting at which he was the only Negro present. That's a quote. At that time, precinct captains were elected. The priest and his friend abstained from voting, which ended with the two candidates deadlocked. Mr. DePriest bargained with one candidate offering to switch two votes his way if he would make Mr. DePriest secretary of the precinct. 
The man agreed and a political career was born. Woo! See? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He married a music teacher named Jesse in 1889. And they had two sons, Lawrence and Oscar Staten Jr. Lawrence mm. drowned as a teenager. Oh. Yeah. Sad. Now, I found a biography on him at the, uh, the U.S. House of Representatives archives. Okay. And... Quote, Chicago's budding Republican machine facilitated depreased foray into politics. Divided into wards and precincts, Chicago evolved into a city governed by a system of political appointments and patronage. Mm -hmm. What struck me about that sentence, the Chicago Republican machine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's wild, right? Like, I mean, so I feel like that's a part of like political history that not a lot of people know about that, you know, before a certain time, most Black people in the United States were Republican. And it was the Democrats that were actually pushing forward that Southern redemptionist agenda of like, you know, we don't like, I mean, they literally like the Civil War ended. And then they're like, you know what, it's illegal for you to like, not like it's illegal for you to like not work. You must have a job. But also, mm. we're going to make it illegal for you to look for jobs here. <laughs> like, it's very similar kind of what's happening in some states now. Yes, very much so. I mean, people act like this stuff is brand new or it just like, you know, evolved and it didn't like there's a blueprint for it, obviously. But yeah, like, I mean, so one of the reasons why I know about like the exoduster movement and even like, you know, black Republicans versus like Democrats, et cetera, is because I'm a huge fan of black historic romance fiction. Oh, it's a very specific genre. Genre I did not know existed. And it's amazing. And so one of the the most foremost like authors of that genre is a woman by the name of Beverly Jenkins, still alive, still releasing. I'm pre-ordered her next book. It's already like waiting for me. Um, but she's out of Detroit and she researches all of her novels and she writes extensively about this pocket of time. Um, and and especially about the divisions and the a lot of like the even internal debate within the black community. Because there were black folks who were like, yes, we're black Republicans, but the Republicans keep making all these promises to us. They never keep these promises. So we should vote with the Democrats. And that was part of like how that shift started to happen is that they were promised certain things mm -hmm. after the Civil War. Republican like president, Senate, et cetera, said, we're going to give you X, Y and Z. We're going to do this, this, this and that. And they just went back on their word and they kept going back on their word. So eventually black folks threw in with the Democrats. We get to that at the end, the why, the why, because I've always wondered how how the shift happened. Yeah. And it becomes very apparent at the end of our story. Ooh, I'm excited. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. Didn't oh, mean no. To, I to, love to it. Blow the, blow we the have ending. a little foreshadowing. <laughs> it was still the party of Lincoln back then. Very much so. Yeah. And absolutely. He saw an opportunity to be a leader due to lack of representation coupled with the growing black population in the 1910s and 20s yeah he was really good at organizing black voters in the second and third wards mm. are those the same wards we still have or were they I, different back then i don't know i didn't look that up his district is I, I mean i think it was near the loop and bronzeville area like the south side oh okay all right yeah. okay gotcha because he lived in bronzeville yeah Okay. Yeah, yeah, that makes that makes sense. That makes sense. Cause I think the city limits at that point ended at like literally in Inglewood. It ended at like 63rd. Okay. Yeah, I have never actually 
I have stuff to research about that, but I just, it didn't even occur to me when I was doing this today that I'm like, oh, yeah, I should make sure. Yeah. So in 1904, he's elected to the Cook County Board, and he won two terms serving until 1908. Okay. We see you, Oscar. Yeah. Oscar's doing it. And after losing his bid for the third term, he spent Mm -hmm. seven years building a real estate empire. You love to hear that. So he was he made money in the stock market and the mm-hmm. and real estate. And according to the Tribune, he owned as much as a hundred thousand dollars in properties. That's a lot of money. It's over three point three million by today's standards. So he was balling out of control, basically, is what he was a, he was a baller. Yeah. He participated in what's called blockbusting. Okay. Do you know what that is? I feel like I used to know what that is, but you know, I I've been in 10 bands, so it hasn't boded well for my brains also. Please remind me. It's helping black people move into predominantly white neighborhoods. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. We would buy apartments in predominantly white neighborhoods and rent them to black people. Got it. I was going to get more into the weeds on this, but I'm going to eventually have to do a redlining episode. Please, you know what I have. So my boss um, is Asia Butler, um, founder of a resident association of Greater Inglewood. And we talk all the time about like redlining and what it's. So let me know. Happy to like connect you with her because she would be great. Excellent. Because I also knew a woman who wrote a book as well Ooh, that came yeah. out a couple of years ago. So he and his family lived on the second flat of an eight flat on. It was the address is 4536 and 38 King Drive. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and one of the big, like, Greystones? Yeah. Okay. He wanted to return to politics, so he gained favor with William Big Bill Hale Thompson Mm -hmm. and U.S. Representative Martin Barnaby Madden. Mm -hmm. We did an episode on Thompson, Mm -hmm. and as much as he hated British people, Mm -hmm. he, he really, really hated British people. (laughs) he's considered to be the most corrupt politician in the history of Illinois. And that's saying something, because damn. Damn, I know. He was a a character. He was also the last Republican mayor we ever had. I don't know what that means, but I feel like that means something. He did what the Verdoli Act 29 feared Mm. Harold Washington would do. Okay. He appointed at least one black person to his you know, which was one more than I think they had had before. But yeah, he sure. was very, he sort of integrated, made, made City Hall a little more integrated. Um, oh, yeah, they get very nervous about that. Yeah. So in 1914, wanting to court the black female vote because women had gotten the right to vote in Illinois the year before. Sure. The Republicans have him run for the alderman of the second ward. Sure. The Black women activists, such as one Ida B. Wells, mm-hmm. campaigned hard for him. Yeah. And he wins. Yep. So he served from 1915 to 1917 and resigned because he was indicted for aldermanic graft. He's taking money. Allegedly. He took $3,000 and a bribe from gambling and vice establishments in the Black Belt. Interesting. Mm. 
a few things. First of all, to underscore and remind the listeners, his contemporaries were Hinky Dink, Bathhouse John, and Big Bill, who were three of the four most corrupt politicians in Illinois history. Yeah, that's why I was like, I don't know if I believe that he did that. I don't know if I believe that. Graft was in the water. Yeah, everybody was doing it. Yeah. When he resigned, he said, quote, I shall devote myself unreservedly to proving my innocence and restoring my good name in this community. That's right, Oscar. Don't and he did. tell your story. Good for you. He got acquitted. Okay. He hired Clarence Darrow as his lawyer. What? Oh, baller move. Yeah, baller move. Like, you know, anything about Clarence Darrow, like, come on now, let's go. Uh-huh. I love it. Yeah, love he it. hired Clarence Darrow. He was acquitted, which is weird for an alderman to be acquitted. <laughs> yeah, kind of. It, like, really does not. They normally are like, no, you're guilty. Let's reelect you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Ed Burke got reelected after he was indicted. I mean, look who's on the presidential ballot right now. I mean, you know. Bingo. There's a pattern. There's a pattern. There is a pattern. Wow. <laughs> that's a- amazing. I'm I'm still, like, stunned that he, like, he hired Clarence Darrow. Uh-huh. He, and I, it, I didn't get the name of the other guy, and now I feel really bad saying this. He hired Clarence Darrow and then a black lawyer, but I had never heard of the black lawyer. Okay. Because... Well, Clarence Darrow, the guy's like his last name was Miller. Okay, okay. We'll we'll look up the black. I'll look up. I'm curious okay. now, but I still think yeah, Clarence. Yeah, that's baller move. Yeah, that's for a three thousand dollar bribe. Seriously, I'm like, <laughs> like no, he really was not. See, and that's how I know that he's innocent because you really are not. You're hiring Clarence Darrow for something like that. You are not fucking around, sir. Excuse nope. my language. You are not messing around at all, and I'm so here for every part of that. That's what's up. Yes. His name is cleared, but he failed to get the Republican nomination for alderman in 1918. So he ran as an independent and he lost. Uh, okay. Okay. In 1924, he became the third ward committeeman. A little context about what was happening in Chicago generally in the 20s. We had... Negro History Week, that's what they called it, it's not what I'm calling it to be really clear, was born in Chicago in 1926. It was chosen in February to include Frederick Douglass's birthday, which is on the 14th, and Lincoln's birthday on the 12th, which eventually led to Black History Month. In 1927, progressive white people created Brotherhood Week to fight against anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic, and anti-Jewish hate. Okay. And the Brotherhood Weeks people started celebrating the Negro History Week because they wanted to heal wounds. Yeah. It's like a big rainbow coalition. That's, it's, it's the opposite of what's happening in, in, in Russia, according to that one family. <laughs> I was thinking about that when you said it. I'm like, oh, my God, they were hating here. Like, they would just. Oh, yeah, they would. They would. You would not do well. I think Scanner Twitter would really hate Chicago of the 1920s. <laughs> you just see like their heads just like popping off and rolling down the street just the steam just <laughs> yeah I, I think oh, about that God. I was thinking about that and, um, four years after becoming the ward committee man 
U.S. Rep. Martin Madden died suddenly. Hmm. And he had already secured the GOP nomination for his 13th term. Mayor Thompson appoints to priest to represent the first congressional district, which includes the Loop and the South Side. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So I, I went today and dug around the Chicago Defender to see what I could find out about him. Uh-huh. And I found his platform. Interesting. This is, this is from a, a little bit about it, from a ninth article about how he was a man of his time. <laughs> Elected as a Republican, DePriest was a congressman during the 71st, 72nd, and 73rd Congresses, beginning in April 1930. And he won on a fair return on capital invested, laborers receiving a fair day's pay, as well as wholesome living conditions and the right to collective bargaining. Oh. Yes. And then he had a stance on what was called the old age pension law, mm. which would guarantee voters at least $50 a month. They got a quote from his campaign literature. I believe all Social Security taxes collected should be earmarked and set aside in a trust to assure the payments of the pensions when due. Mm. I feel like I need him to come back. Any, uh, I'm going to talk to some of my friends who, who do voodoo and hoodoo and see what we can do, because damn. Yeah, he had a quote, Joel, and government should no more than an individual expend more than it receives in taxes. Mm. So he was a balanced budget guy. Mm. Fiscally but conservative, as it were. He was fiscally conservative. I, I find it fascinating. Those things now, some people think that's communism. Oh, he would be, that's what I was about to say. Like, he, he wouldn't make it to a ballot. I don't know if he would make it, like, off his block. Like, maybe in, like, a straight jacket. Because I feel like people would hear this and be like, radical. And it, like, yeah. it's actually pretty rational and fairly conservative, honestly. Right. It just makes me starkly realize how far, and this is why I brought up those dumb, dumb Russians and Tucker trying to use a yeah. grocery cart. It's how far. Right. The yeah. right. I don't even call them conservatives. No. Yeah. No, they're fascists. Well, yes. They're... I also found an article from 1915 about a telegram he sent to Congressman Madden about fighting an immigration bill. Interesting. Which immigration bill? I got vetoed by Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson. Okay. It was, I didn't re read a lot about it. I read the veto. And you had, it was like a, like a character. You had a certain characteristics to come to the country. So it was sort of limiting like elementary school education. Okay. Yeah. It was, it was limiting like, and he, I mean, Woodrow Wilson, I'll put it in the show notes. It's just like, this is not who we are as Americans. Yeah. And yeah. Back to the election. Oh, he hosted weekly meetings at his office? For, yeah. In November, you had Harry Baker, who was a Democrat, and three independents, one of whom was William Harrison, who was a black assistant attorney general, who attracted some votes away from DePriest. Mm. He won by 48%. Interesting. DePriest did. 
Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I feel like a, a solid businessman mm -hmm. is like, <laughs> we should make all these plans to like help people get paid fairly. Like I, like I know why he won. Cause like what he was proposing, like, you know, seemed to resonate and like actually address what people were navigating back then, which I wish as I wish some, like, I don't know. I wish politicians were like even a quarter as keyed in today. Right. And I'm sure he also still had Ida B. Wells behind him. Sure. Like Absolutely. He, yeah. I mean, he's a, he's a black businessman, wants people to get paid fairly, and is from a predominantly black now yeah. voting area. Yep. He was the first black congressman from the North and the first in the entirety of the 20th century. Like the first black congressman in, for all of America. In the 20th century. Wow. Yeah. He served three terms, which he won his reelections by 58 and 55% respectively. Amazing. 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 Now, now we're going to get in because it didn't really go great for him in Washington. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty. <laughs> go on. Just continue. We've had fun so far, but now we're going to just get into some blatant racism. Madden had been on the Appropriation Committee. Do you think he inherited that seat? Hell no. No. Hell no. They put him probably on the committee. Like, well, no, I'm going to just let you tell me what committee they put him on, but I have my suspicions. Please continue. He sat on the following committees while well, he was in office. The Indian Committee. The Invalid Persons Committee, I made a note to look that up and we'll get there in a minute, and enrolled bills. From 1933 to 35, he sat on the Post Office and Post Roads Committee, which was actually really good because when he was first elected, the Post Office Department employed 45% of all Black federal employees. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Trepidatiously looked into what the Invalid Persons Committee was and couldn't find much. But I did find a bio for James Edward O'Hara, a black congressman from North Carolina who sat on the committee and, quote, as a member of the House Committee on Invalid Persons, he worked to obtain appropriations for the relief of Civil War victims, both veterans and their relatives, and sought to alleviate the suffering of Blacks in the aftermath of the war. And this confused me even more. And then I went back and reread that I actually had a typo and mispronounced, and it's invalid pensions. Oh, Oh, that makes so much more sense. And, and, and somehow also makes me feel way more relieved because I did not want to hear what their definition of an invalid person was. I was like, I don't want to. I just don't even want to. I love history, but I don't I don't want to. And so that it strangely makes me feel somewhat better, although I also feel like I am going to end up feeling a little worse. So please go I, I just had to share that because I thought we could use some levity, which is... That's fan-fucking-fast. Oh, my God. I'm just like, oh. And then literally, like, I'm like, oh, I just typed that. <laughs> I was like, invalid. 
is that just another way of y'all being fucked up? Like, how many phrases do you have? How many times a phrase do you have for we just don't fuck with y'all? Like, that's, <laughs> that's what I was going to That's what I want to know. Because I was, I was, my heart was like, invalid. Does it mean like, and then you said the Civil War. And I was like, wait, because nobody kept records during slavery? Like, I went like all the way around the mulberry bush and back again. Because I was like, <laughs> no, it's just me being an idiot. I'm also not sure why I'm so cynical and went to that place. I mean, you grew up here. You know what it is. <laughs> like, you live here, too. Well, and this is, I was, I was, the way I work is I research and then I write. So yeah. I now know a lot about what Congress was like in that time period. Word. Word. Not great. Gonna, yeah. I'm going to read from the U.S. House of Representative Archives again. After his election in November, the local press speculated that the House might attempt to exclude DePriest. One month before the election, DePriest was indicted, charged with conspiracy to commit election fraud in the April primary elections in Chicago. Although he had been cleared of the charges a few days before the start of the new Congress, Ruth Hannah McCormick, Another newly elected Republican from Illinois enlisted the assistance of Speaker Nicholas Longworth of Ohio to thwart potential challenges by Southern Democrats to DePriest's seat. Rep Longhorn is married to Petty Roosevelt's daughter. Not cute. Okay. <laughs> and his wife, she was a personal friend of McCormick. So McCormick went to her. Now, do you know the name McCormick at all? Like McCormick Foundation or like? Yeah. 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 Like the founder of the Tribune. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think her, her father was also, uh, I want to say he was a senator, Ruth Hannah McCormick. She's a fascinating mm -hmm. lady, fascinating suffragette. Okay. She's going to get her own episode someday. That's what's up. And what happened, and I don't know how they do it now, but the speaker swore everyone in as a group. Opposed to going state by state. Interesting. They used to go state by state. And then the representatives when sworn in could have questioned someone else getting sworn in. Like certifying the mm -hmm. goddamn election. Got. And let's just think of some of the earlier states' names. Um, Alabama. Mm -hmm. Arkansas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he just swore them all in group. And nobody could disrupt his membership. That's it. And there were many Black people watching from a segregated visitor galley. Now, we know that Chicago is a segregated city. And I did an episode on the 1919 race run. Mm. That said, I'm going to just read from the archives. As the first African-American elected to Congress for nearly three decades, DePriest forged a new path as a black representative from a northern city, he benefited from the demographic shift wrought by the Great Migration that transformed his Chicago district. But DePriest also encountered a segregated city when he arrived in the nation's capital. They go on to write, DePriest welcomed the responsibility of representing the entire black population of the United States of America. Beginning in his first term, DePriest spoke out about the blatant disregard of constitutional protections for Black Americans in the South and called for federal election laws 
to address the disenfranchisement of Black voters. He hoped that Congress would use the provisions in the 14th Amendment to reduce the number of congressional seats held by Southern states. Quote, I am the only member of my race in Congress, DePriest said, but I hope to convince my fellow legislators that the right is on my side. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. He was the person representing all 12 million black people in the country no pressure. I watched an interview, which will be in the show notes, with his great great grandson. And he kept pointing out he was a black caucus of one. What's wild is that, like, the numbers of black people that were influential in terms of even just like organizing or in terms of, um, Oh, man, like a bunch of different things. Um, the number was so tiny. So Ida B. Wells, for example, went and researched all these lynchings that happened in the South. And she gathered all this research. She did like a decade of like research, went to the sites, talked to the families, talked to everybody, put all this research together. And she wanted to publish it. And she went to like, I'll never forget this, the 125 wealthiest black men in the country to publish all this research about lynchings. And they turned her down. Oh, so the 100 wow. most wealthiest black women then stepped up and they put up the money. And that's how we finally get like 700 pages of research into lynchings from Ida B. Wells. But it's wild that the number of like influence, like it's so small, like so that, small, that group. That is a very small group. I mean, he's a caucus of one. Yeah. Yeah. Just him. He refused to support funding and for, uh, Enforcement funding of the 18th Amendment. He he refused to support funding for enforcing the 18th Amendment unless the government committed to adding Reconstruction-era additions to the Constitution. Mm -hmm. He was a Tommy Tuberville, but for good reasons. Mm -hmm. Speaking of dumb racists from the state of Alabama. Oh, my God. Miles Clayton Elgood resigned from the Enrolled Bills Committee rather than sit on the committee with DePriest. Mm. 
sounds racist. So what you say his name was? Miles, Miles what? Miles Clayton, all good. Is that what you said? Yep, Miles Clayton, all good. You sound like a racist Miles Clayton, all good. <laughs> like you sound like you would pull some like baby ass, like let me throw a tantrum because I don't want to sit next to you. Jesus, I can't. Oh. Like, I can't. Who are you? Like who raised you? I mean, I who raised you. Like that's why you are the way that you are. But still, <laughs> it's just not okay. And early in his first term, Lady Lou Hoover invited congressional spouses to the White House for tea. Before we talk about the blatant racism that's about to happen, this second week in a row that an episode referenced Herbert Hoover, which might be the only two times anyone aside from a uh, aside from a performance of Annie will mention him in 2024. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wow, two episodes in a row where Hoover is president. Ooh. This is from the archives. Okay. The first lady's invitation provoked a wave of condemnation across the South. Several Southern state legislators, including Mississippi's, passed resolutions imploring the Herbert Hoover administration to give, quote, careful and thoughtful consideration to the necessity of the preservation of the racial integrity of the white race. That's the end of the quote. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Can you just read it one more time? Oh, we're, we'll get to it in a minute. <laughs> I'll just finish reading from this. Yeah, the, keep going. The first lady divided the reception into four sessions in an attempt to avoid a boycott by the wives of Southern members. Mrs. DePriest attended the smallest of the four gatherings with a few women chosen by the administration. Okay, that quote, careful and thoughtful consideration to the necessity of the preservation of the racial integrity of the white race. So <laughs> I feel like if that integrity was all that, you wouldn't need to carefully consider that much. Like, oh no. Like I'd be mean, like if the integrity was like integrity and like why we gotta spend so much time on it. Like I don't it's yeah. Well I, you're familiar with the 14 words, right? Yeah. I counted, and this is 18 words, so it's four mm. too many. Yes. But that is some 14 word shit. Yeah. Straight up and down. That's also some great replacement shit. Yeah. Yeah. Straight up in it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So DePriest had mm. this to say about the incident. I've been elected to Congress the same as many other members. I'm going to have the rights of every other congressman, no more and no less, if it's in the congressional barbershop or at a White House tea. Two weeks later, in one would call now an expert level IRL troll troll. He hosted an NAACP fundraiser in DC, inviting every Republican congressperson except two. Mm -hmm. Not invited were George Moore Pitchard, Pitchard. Mm -hmm of North Carolina because he refused to take the office next to the priest. And Albert Henry Vestal of Indiana because his wife tried to ban Jesse DePriest from the Congressional Wives Club. 
I guess Indiana is just going to Indiana. It's just all day, every day. And I live right next to Indiana, so I, I can I can vouch for it. It's always been like this. It's going to always be like that. I don't know what happens when we cross the border, but you can feel it. It's like a palpable change in how much racism I'm breathing in. Yes, it's uh, Indiana is a yeah, bigoted, bigoted place. I also want to point out we're starting to see the dissonance in the Republican Party. Yeah. As a lawmaker, our dude introduced bills to use the federal government to protect black civil rights, which sadly we know were not passed because Ruby Bridges is 69 years old. He introduced anti-lynching legislation, mm. which would jail or fine local officials of prisoners in their jurisdiction were victims. Mm. It didn't pass. Of course not. Why would, why, would, why would we do that? Right. I didn't bring this up earlier because it was dark and I really only want to talk about lynching one time during the episode. No, real. When in Alabama, his parents housed a black congressman from an angry mob that wanted to lynch him. Oh, my God. And his family moved to Kansas after Oscar discovered the body of a neighbor who had been lynched. Yeah. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's the thing is that, like, so, you know, just to give some context, even to, like, moving to Kansas, like, during that time, there was nothing built, like, in Kansas. There was not, it was, it was, it, it was empty. To the point where people actually um, built a lot of their housing under the ground and they had stovepipes that like came up through the ground to like make sure that the air could come down because that's how they protected themselves against tornadoes. But like the first couple of years that they settled out there, it was very like hard scrabble. There was nothing. So they were if you if you can imagine a life so horrific and so violent that you just like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm gonna go build a house in the dirt. Like, just go to the dust and, like, see what I can get, like. Get like, me the hell out of here. Yeah, it's like, I will take a bowl of dust over whatever bullshit you try to do in the South right now. That is that is the kind of life that I, I mean, and so many Black families, 40,000, made that trek. And when I say they made that trek, I mean, we're talking wagons. We're talking some with, like, no money, some with no tools. Like some people just showed up with nothing. Can you imagine trying to like build a life or raise like a homestead with like not even a hammer? No. Like a shovel? You know what I mean? Like it, when you think about like when I really put myself in that place and I'm, you know, I'm a, I have a 10 year old and I think about like what kind of like what kind of conditions would we have to live in? How violent would it have to be for me to be like, we're going to leave everything and everyone we've known, pack up all of our stuff, go to a place where we have no idea what it's like. And we really got no money. And we got no tools. But we know. Is going to be a hell of a lot better than whatever this is right here. Right. This is too dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. He introduced several proposals to use federal power to, as we mentioned, uh, protect black civil and political rights. Yeah. In 1933, he forth a resolution to amend the Constitution that would authorize federal courts to change the location of a trial if the defendant's right to impartiality was compromised by quote considerations of race color or creed mm. it was inspired by the scottsboro boys mm. are you familiar with that case i'm assuming yeah. yeah yeah uh for anybody who doesn't know nine african-american boys were sentenced uh to death by an all-white jury for raping two white women and there was no evidence 
And that was when, when Ida B. Wells did all of that research, she found over the 700 that, that she, you know, studied, that she researched, the vast majority of them were based on false allegations of rape. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you, when you think to me, when I think about that and I think about like that, that like intersection, that says so much to me about even how we like approach, and I don't want to get us like too far afield here, but. Oh, we can. Just, but I just always found that that's so interesting that that's the basis actually of the majority of lynchings was this, this, that black men were just hyper violent. And then what's happening like kind of at the same time. So like a few decades later, Rosa Parks starts researching, but she starts researching the black women survivors of sexual violence in the South. And like, you know, the ways in which they've been impacted by it. And when you think about the fact that like it took, I think, until the 1960s before the first white man was ever convicted Mm. of sexual violence against like a black woman. When I think about all of those things together, it I don't know. I feel like it just says something about this nation and like the origins. Something about the nation and the origins. Also, there's a book called Bring the War Home by Kathleen Mm -hmm. Blue. She's a. Uh, white power historian by white by white power historian she studies white power not mm. she's a white power practitioner <laughs> got it thank you and for clarifying <laughs> one of the things she talks about repeatedly and you can't unsee i'm sure you know about this but you can't unsee it is mm. how much white nationalist and neo-nazis it's all about protecting the white woman yes yes yeah it's very much rooted in this like victorian sort of mentality of like the fragile flower, you know, who, um, you know, who isn't, um, you know, who needs to be protected and needs to be. And what's and what's wild, too, is like all of like the sort of machinations they had to go through to justify that this protection of like white womanhood and femininity, while at the same time, literally like, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to get too graphic here. But literally enacting like this wild violence on like black women and children and and men as well, literally creating more of a workforce without having to import it. I'll put it like that. And so they had to come up with something that made both of these things okay. And what they came up with was, well, black women aren't human. They're animals. So we can just do what we want. And that that was the justification. Yeah. And that's. That's I don't know how to. um transition from that right that's a that's a rough one in 1932 he suggested monthly federal pensions for former slaves aged 75 and Mm -hmm. older yeah Mm -hmm. now social security which he ran on didn't actually start until 1935 Mm. but he was looking ahead yeah because the elderly slaves or former slaves would Mm -hmm. not have paid into social security and but they surely put their work in, so they need something, right? I don't think it passed. Of course, I mean, why would? <laughs> why do we have all black people to break? I mean, they just you know planted and plowed and cooked and cleaned and did did, did everything for everybody. But you know, keep on working, go ahead. He did nominate several black men for military positions. I'm just going to paraphrase these quotes; are kind of long and boring, and they're not written easily to read. But he wasn't really successful in his individual legislative efforts. Sure. But he was really good at the amendment process. 
mm. and in shaping pending legislation. That's great. So, for example, in the 1930s, he got funding or preserved funding in the U.S. Department of Interior Appropriation Bill that started a new library at Howard University. And people who tried to strip the money of the bill, citing that they need to cut spending amid the Great Depression, but he used the idea that these Black teachers, quote, go back to the Southland and educate the Black youth. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So that got approved. Now, shocking no one, the house restaurant was whites only. Not not even close to surprise. No. And the manager ordered his secretary and her son to leave at one point in time. He introduced a resolution to investigate if a public facility could do that. Mm. Like a government public facility. Mm. And yeah. yeah, long story short, there's some politicking dot, 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 committees, dot, dot, dot. They're divided along party lines, dot, 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 and nothing got done. Which, welcome to 2024. I mean, I feel like if you're familiar at all with like the art of war or 48 laws of power or anything else that like narcissistic people who love power and control love to read like one of the things you will come across is that attrition is like a tool that is you know who who can last the longest who can who can who can hang in the longest and i think what i like about mr priest is that he clearly you know is playing chess and not checkers so even though like his stuff might not have passed then it feels like he was setting it up though for like future folks to come and a long yeah a long game and he was one thing that i read is he was willing to cross party lines to get stuff done that's what you got to do. Yeah. Now, as we mentioned, he was fiscally conservative. He opposed the New Deal. Mm. Yeah. In 1934, he's defeated by Arthur W. Mitchell. He had been a former Republican who switched to the Democratic Party because he was an FDR stan. Mm-hmm. He also kind of got anti-communist. We'll talk about that at the end of this. I'm just going to, he warned, then I'm going to quote from the archives, that communists were spreading subversive propaganda through schools to capitalize on the economic distress across the nation. In 1933, DePriest introduced a resolution that would have organized a special house committee to investigate teachers and students engaged in, quote, practices immunical to our American government. Does that sound familiar at all? Yeah, a little bit. Just a little bit. I found, getting into more familiar territory, I found an article from the Chicago Defender, and the headline reads, Please check Red's attack on DePriest. Red's battle comes to storm office of Oscar DePriest. So he's got communists. Picking outside of his office. All in a dither. So very, <laughs> very upset. I just wrote history rhymes. Mm. Mm. And I thought about this and everything I've read about him, I don't think, initially I heard that and I thought it was akin to Joe McCarthy. 
Mm. And I just, I don't, I don't think it was. No. I mean, I think that like, you know, like most, like most black folks, I'll say like most, you know, black people in general, like I think there's always a healthy suspicion of ideologies that on the surface might seem amazing and awesome and fine, but like actually don't explicitly or even specifically address like what black folks in the United States, especially back then, were facing. And mm-hmm. I think that like that suspicion is still well and healthy these days, because I think also like if you look at it from the perspective of a people that is trying to like make their way in a nation and trying to assimilate, trying to establish themselves, trying to establish some sort of like economic foundation for themselves. It's hard to to walk away from that in favor of like, let's throw everything in the bucket and everybody wins. Because like historically, like we're the ones who categorically get left out. And I think also people were just back then trying to figure out like, well, how does capitali- cap- how does capital- capitalism even work for black people? How do we work within capitalism? Could it ever work for us? Are we ever able to, you know, be able to establish ourselves even now? We are still having these conversations like in Inglewood. Part of my work is working on economic development in Inglewood. We are still having these same conversations, collective action versus, you know, capitalism, communism versus capitalism, putting everything together, the collective versus like the individual. And I know I'm being reductive, but I don't think it was McCarthyism either. I think it was basically like we as black folks are trying to figure out how to make our way in this nation. And we can't like do that if we already are like let's just throw away the whole system that exists well okay that makes sense that makes sense and i'm also there's a super nuanced conversation that i like to have um you know there is where where is it where is it sexism where is it an ism versus where should we be uniting because it is a class deal absolutely totally yeah totally yeah and i think it's hard to it also like so that's like a tension that exists like within the black community Right. The tension between the black capitalists who are able to, like, get political power and who are, quote unquote, representing like the entire black community. But not really, though, because a lot of times those black people who are in those places of like power and representation actually don't have any idea what it's like for black folks who who grow up with no money and no connections and are like, you know, living hand to mouth, paycheck to paycheck, whatever. That same tension also Mm -hmm. exists today. So I feel like in some ways he may think, oh, I'm representing like. Black excellence or like the highest of black interests or whatever, that doesn't necessarily mean that that applies to all black people across the board. So you mean out of touch elitism happens outside of white people? Yeah. (laughs) 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 Don't nobody like poor people, black people. And that's where the class conversation comes in because like, Ain't none of these people have our best interest in mind at all. Right. They're not even in like they're not even in touch with when I listen to the media talking heads are like you people. None of you are in touch with people. Have a conversation with someone that didn't go to Harvard. Yep. Yep. But to get there. Right. Like that's the conundrum is that to get there, Mm -hmm. you know, those are the ways that you have to go. And then by the time you go through all of that and then you get there, you've also been changed so much by that process. Or maybe you were raised or enculturated into that process that by the time you get to wherever it is that you're trying, you're right. Like you're so far from the people who actually need that representation. You can't even be in conversation with them. You can't even get to those people. Right. It's like Nancy Pelosi, I'll pull a white person out, is so out of touch 
with the people that she claims to talk about, yep. that she can, you know, with actual working class America or American workers, because you know, there's like, you know, working class is a very specific or middle class America even. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, yeah, they have no, they have no idea. Like, I ask people, like, did you have student loans? Mm. 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 That did part. You get, did you get a PPP loan? Yeah. That part. That part. Yeah. It's just one of the ones that I always keep in mind was uh, Ted Cruz. Mm-hmm. When they wanted to cancel student loans and he made fun of the barista. It's like, what well, gotta be job shaming? Well, yeah. And where does that, and, and that's the thing though, is that that, yes, that like, why, why do you have to be job shaming? And, and two, I mean, I think that, yeah, that's something that, again, we don't, we don't talk about it a lot, but you know, at least like outside of our own sort of like inner circle. So probably I'm like, you know, going to get a, a chip taken out of my black card here. But these are conversations that happen in the black community. There's tons of job shaming in the black community, tons of like financial shaming in the black community, you know, tons of like, there's actually an entire, um, I don't know if this necessarily falls under like shaming as much as it's just funny as hell, but I think it does come out of the same energy. There's a series on TikTok called grown men begging for money. Okay. They dip into the DMS of women that they're like either just started dating or that they're just like flirting with literally asking them for money and then that's a big attitude when they get shut. <laughs> sort of related to that bonnie willis testified uh, today oh right did, did you, and she's i didn't like, a man is not a plan what come on now yes that's right with the rhymes that's right with the rhyme a man is not a plan as a matter of fact there's a woman uh, there's a woman also on TikTok. Her name is Shira Seven. She, they call her the Sprinkle Sprinkle Lady because, like, whenever she gives advice, she ends up with Sprinkle Sprinkle. And so she talks a lot about, like, about men and, like, basically how she just uses men for money and has been married to, she, she's been married to the same man, James, for a long time. And she's very, like, open. And she's like, I don't like him. He, oh, I don't, I don't, I like his money, though. I know that. I like his money. Like, she's so, like, bold and, like, unapologetic. Um, but yeah, like that there's like there is like this mentality, though, in the black community that like if you are and there's also like a, a huge like thing of like if you are from a particular class of the black community. So we call it like the Jack and Jill set. I don't know if you've heard of Jack and Jill. Jack and Jill is a, um, it's a it's like a business leadership, like economic entrepreneurship training program that starts when you're like six. OK, OK. And I so haven't little, heard of it, but I got a vibe. I got a vibe. Yeah. So low black children go to Jack and Jill on Saturdays and Sundays and they like meet like, you know, business, black business owners and whatever. And this is like basically the training ground for like your baby black, like entrepreneurs or like baby politics, maybe black politicians, whatever. They get their start in these like Jack and Jill spaces Um, and in these spaces where it's all about black excellence. It's all about how much you've achieved. And there's a lot of conversation about the separation between Black folks that have money and that have good credit versus like black folks that like live in the hood and like live in like seriously, it's it's a it's a whole it's a whole thing. It's a whole divisive thing in the black community. And there's a huge line between like the haves and the have nots. And then also conversely, 
the representation of the have-nots as a driver of like the hip-hop industry, for example, which is now like a multi-billion dollar economy. So it's mm-hmm. represented by like the have-nots, but it's run by the haves. Oh, absolutely. Also are pissed off that they are being represented by the have-nots, but that's the shit that people like. People like Cardi B. They like they like that she grew up in the Bronx and that she was like a stripper and now she has like all this money. But if you got and it's because I went back and watched the first season of Love and Hip Hop that she was on and I watched the reunion and I watched people's faces because she just has no filter. She has no polish. And when you look at the rest of the members of the cast who claim to be representing hip hop culture and whatever, you can see the distaste and the discomfort on their face because Mm. she's really poor and they all came from families with money. Well, they came from the families of Jack and Jill. Those are the people that yeah. can drive their kids yes. to a place on a Saturday and Sunday. Absolutely. And have the time to hang out while they go and do their thing for however many hours. Like, it's wild. And they're, yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things, especially if you're not exposed, like, I grew up privileged. Um, you know, I had parents who could drive me to my theater classes on Saturdays. But if you're not exposed to it, it's it's a whole different way of looking at the world. There's a whole different context of how life is for people whose parents don't work nine to five jobs Monday through Friday. Yeah. Yeah. And I. Yeah. Or my mom worked every other weekend because she was a nurse, but my dad was home with me. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I grew up the total opposite, like single parent in the projects. My dad was a drug addict, didn't meet him until I was 19. Um, I went to my mom's job every day after school. Um, there was no like extracurricular like stuff on the weekend. I was at my grandmother's house while my mom did grocery shopping and house cleaning and, you know, all kinds of other stuff um, to do her thing. And it's interesting because now I've gotten to this place in my career where I put in all this work in the nonprofit sector and I've made myself a- apparently like somewhat like respectable. So I will end up in rooms with people who have done Jack and Jill or who have gone to Harvard or who or whatever and their discomfort around me is palpable because I can like fake it all day, but they can like smell it on me. They can smell it like you're one of the pores. Like they can, they can smell it and I can tell. Like I can, yeah. Let me ask you a question. I, is this a part of respectability politics? Absolutely. It's a okay. huge part of it. Yeah. Because I didn't really know what that was until I, I watched Real Housewives. Yeah. Um, and two of the women on Potomac got into a fight. Yeah. And there was a whole like think pieces about respectability politics. Yeah. So it's it's a thing where like, again, it was a separation tactic. And like Ida B. Wells actually was a big proponent of respectability politics. Um, I don't think she knew what the ripple effect with that would be. But there was a especially early on. Black folks who were trying to what and they and they had a term for it. You know, you're bettering yourself. You're bettering the race is what they would mm. call it. So you had to be very, you know, careful. Your, you know, your clothes are always clean. Your face is always washed. You know how to speak well. Like elocution was a big deal in like HBCUs early on. Like literally the art of speechifying was like a class. It was a thing. It was a movement. It was something that you did as a kid. You memorized poems. You recited them. There were contests, the whole thing. And so how you appeared, the way you dressed, how you spoke, um, whether or not you engaged in vices like liquor or smoking or whatever, these were huge deals. And if you wanted to become any kind of pillar of the black community or any kind of successful black person, anything, you had to conduct yourself in a way that made you feel or made you appear respectable to the outer world. How that plays out now is that, like, for example, Cardi B, she's a perfect you know, example of that. Nobody from Love and Hip Hop expected her to be the breakout star. Why? 
She's from the Bronx. She grew up in the project. She's a stripper. She shouldn't be the person representing this brand. That's what they thought. But her authenticity is what became a touchstone for people. And then it didn't matter because they just like looking at her and listening to her. And it kills people because from the respectability politics angle, she shouldn't be successful at all. She should be punished for being poor and obnoxious and loud. Wow. I mean, this all makes sense. And what I'm just seeing is white people and black people are kind of all the same. Totally. In this, the same. In this regard. I mean, in this regard. In this, yeah. Well, and, and too, like, it also comes from the fact that, like, a lot of those, like, upwardly mobile black people wanted to be like white people. They wanted their money. They wanted their political power. They wanted, you know, their lives. They wanted their freedom. And so, uh, uh, you know, the premise, the thought process, and this is still true today, is that in order for me to get these things, I have to act like these people. If I act like these people, I would get these things. If I have their money, if I, you know, if I act in the way that they want, if I speak how they want, if I dress how they want, if I look in a way that makes them feel comfortable, it's also a way of like very much censoring whiteness. It's about like responding to that or reacting to that or resist whatever, however it is, it's still the center of it is is whiteness, which to mm. me is what makes it gross. All right. We're almost done. So Mitchell was he um so during the campaign, Mitchell criticized DePriest for declining to vote for the federal aid for mm. the New Deal and his failure to desegregate Capitol Hill. Uh, his failure. His failure. His I mean, failure to desegregate. Okay. <laughs> Okay. All right. All right. Early echoes of the Moynihan report, but keep going. He was the first black Democrat elected mm. to the U.S. Congress. Arthur Mitchell was. Yes. And That's this right. highlights the trend, not just in Chicago, but across the northern cities, that due to the Great Depression and subsequent New Deal, black voters were switching party affiliation. Yep. That's when that started to happen. Yeah. Oscar ran against Mitchell again in 1936, and he lost. Um, Mitchell got 65% of the vote, which is. That's huge. In fast forward to 1943, he's elected as alderman of the third ward, serving until 1947. Mm. And 1951, at the age of 80, he's hit by a bus. Literally hit by a bus. And he died in the hospital months later due to complications. Man. Now, as perused the Chicago Defender, I found an article from 1927 that moved me. And I will always remember the priest very, very fondly because of this. Mm. And it's titled... Lifer freed after 37 years starts over. Oscar DePriest acts as his first friend. When Eugene Debs was in jail, mm. he met a guy named Sam Moore who was serving life in prison and was completely friendless and everyone had forgotten and abandoned him. And Debs becomes friends with him and teaches him to read and write. Mm. They're in Georgia. Okay. And once Debs is released, he writes a story about Moore, which got a lot of attention, particularly from a novelist named Mm. Zona Gale. And she took up the cause to get him pardoned. Mm. But she couldn't get anyone to take possession of him. Mm. So you know how when you leave jail, there's got to be someone that will actually pick you up. She couldn't get anybody to do that. 
the priest offered to be his first friend. Oh. Moore was happy to take residence and employment in, quote, the most progressive city in the country. So he moved up to Chicago and worked for DePriest. That's amazing. Yeah, it's an amazing story. It's like, I love a good redemption story. Yeah. His apartment on King Drive was declared a National Historic Landmark in 1975. Awesome. In January of 2020, they had a ribbon cutting to reveal the restoration. They did a big restoration. I'll include the links in the Block Club Chicago article, but it's like there's grants and stuff. You might geek out, but it's yeah. like too confusing yeah. for me. Like a whole thing about Bronzeville. Mm -hmm. um, Danny Davis said mm -hmm. about DePriest that he helped, this is a quote, helped to set into motion the agenda for African-American equality, which continues unfinished to this day. Absolutely. I'm going to end this with... A quote that DePriest, a quote from a speech that DePriest gave to the NAACP. Mm. I want to thank the Democrats of the South for being one thing. They were so barbaric, they drove my parents to the North. If they hadn't bet, if it hadn't been for that, I wouldn't be in Congress today. I've been Jim Crowed, segregated, persecuted, and I think I know the best way the Negro can put a stop to being imposed on. It is through the ballot, through organization, through fighting eternally for his rights. And I mean, on one hand, I'm just going to sum up this up and then I'll let you go make your dinner. On one hand, this makes me really proud to be a Chicagoan. In the same session, we had a black man and a woman in Congress. And I feel like even now when we have our problems, that's the spirit of Chicago. Yeah. But then I go to Twitter and see blatant racism about Brandon Johnson saying, quote, that's what you get when you elect a black mayor. And Michigan, a representative, this is just this week, uh, Michigan, a representative has been stripped of his committee seats and staff for, for tweeting out a great replacement meme. You know, and, and I was watching Fonnie Willis, and I'm, I'm just like, this is because she's, at, she's a woman and she's black and she's a black woman. Yeah. And I, I feel like we're going backwards. I also feel like he should be more of a Chicago hero. And yeah. vote. Yeah, all, all of that. I mean, <laughs> all of that. I mean, I think that like one thing I take from the story about DePriest, which appreciate and especially, you know, with the, a lot of the work that I do in Inglewood, which is like organizing and it is um, advocating for rights and it is like speaking up about a bunch of stuff and like really being annoying to like city hall. <laughs> um often um as often as we can i mean you know like not just because but you know for good reason um but i think what i appreciate is anybody who's able to sustain a career like that in a space where the goalposts are constantly moving mm -hmm. where they're constantly like what you said about like how he was able to navigate like a, a, you know amendments and then like you know really sort of like um submitting like legislation and like taking another run at it you know turning the cube figuring out well, can we do it from this angle well, can we that that is what it takes and it that's the part of the work that i think people find exhausting because it's not linear it's not like a linear drive to like to justice or a linear drive to like get right like i can see from your story and hear from the story about Dupree's, i can hear what he was working on in the 1920s and my familiarity with like legislation and just all different kinds of things happen 
50s and 60s, how that was just like a, it was a to talk about a foreshadow. It was literally like setting the foundation, setting the stage for things that wouldn't come to pass for another 30, 40, 50 years. It's amazing when people are able to work in that way, knowing that they're actually probably not going to see the result of what they're doing, but still being committed to like hanging in anyway. That's definitely like the Chicago spirit. I mean, sure. what, what you just reminded me of there was Harold Washington. Yep. Like that's, yeah, like that it is knowing that you're working for a long game. And one of the things I think Democrats in general, regardless if you're liberal leftist, all of them, it's there's no vision for a long game. The Republicans yeah. had a long game and they still have one and it's written and it's there uh, for everybody uh, to see and check and, out. And they're on page like eight. Right. They had a long game that they started in the 80s. And it's playing out exactly the way that they want it to. I mean, that's the thing is that we need in on this side of the aisle or whatever side you want to call it on the more progress in the more progressive part of the world. We do actually need strategists. We need strategy. We need people who know how to play chess and not checkers. Like, mm -hmm. and that's what that's what Republicans. I think they're killing us on that. They're killing well, us. It's also. There's also a. And I think the Republicans are going to experience this. People have a purity test. Yeah. And the Democratic Party. William F. Buckley had a, you don't nominate the most conservative guy in the room. You nominate the most conservative person that can get elected. Exactly. And that's, I don't know, but yeah, that, that's what I see is, you know. Um, and also just one of the things, also, this is the importance of, politics on the local level mm -hmm. so like i want to ask you when you work in englewood do you have to deal a lot with lopez oh yeah i mean we like not not directly but that's actually why you know so i work for the resident association of greater englewood we're a resident association the reason why we it was even started um in 2010 is because back then englewood had six different aldermen we have five now but with, God. but with so many different aldermen, competing priorities, networks, goals, skill sets, everything, it was hard for the residents to have one say, this is what we want, or this is what we see, or these are the issues that we see stretching across all these wards. So we actually got started as a way to organize the residents to be able to like say, actually, here's what we want, and here's what we think, and we're not about to spin our wheels appealing to five different aldermen when we can like come, you know, when you can like come to one meeting. And hear from all of us. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. All right. Any other thoughts? No, just that this was this was great. This was this was a this was a really fun conversation. I love history. I love Chicago history. I love Black history. I love Black Chicago history. So this was this was really fun. I really appreciate you having me. Excellent. Now, thank you for joining me. Where can people find you? Oh yeah, so they can find. Um, on my website, which is www.nikkipatan.com, N-I-K-K-I-P-A-T-I-N.com. Um, and if you want to learn more about RAGE, um, Resident Association of Greater Inglewood, you can go to rageinglewood.org. All right. And listeners, I appreciate you. Hit the subscribe button quicker than a mass swearing in of Congress. Leave a five-star <laughs> review in the time that it takes to communicate to your local politicians and tell all your friends. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.